I do know physicians that that have done that. Um, you know, for, on the surgical side, it tends to be surgeons buying into a surgical center where they practice, and on the you know, clinic physician side, it, it may you know, maybe more of uh, you know buying the office space and and then owning the building and and renting it out to others, as you said. Um, the benefit, obviously, is that if all goes well, you know, you're, you're you're sort of double dipping. You're getting um, a not free, but you you you're, you know you own your office space, so you're not paying rent. You're collecting rent from others. Uh, and as long as your practices do well, then, then all is well, and you can make uh, great money doing that. This is the Providers, Properties, and Performance Podcast, the podcast that brings together leaders in healthcare and investment real estate to consider the possibilities in future at the intersection of practicing medicine and healthcare real estate investment returns. Welcome to the Providers, Properties, and Performance Podcast. I am your host, Trisha Talbot. As a healthcare real estate advisor to providers and investors, the best solutions occur when the two collaborate together as partners in delivering better patient care. Providers can deliver care to their patients when and where they need it, and investors realize the returns to build and manage facilities. We explore changes in medicine and wellness, the future of healthcare, and using real estate as a strategic and financial tool. In today's episode of the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast, I interview Dr. Leif Dahlin. He is formerly an anesthesiologist, and we discuss physician burnout in general and the complexity of practicing medicine that drove his mission to retire early and invest in real estate to lead him to financial independence. He teaches this FIRE concept to other physicians and can be found at physicianonfire.com. Leif, welcome to the Providers Properties and Performance Podcast. Thank you very much for the invitation. Happy to be here. Uh, so you are a physician, former anesthesiologist, um, on a mission to teach the FIRE concept, which is financial independence, retire early on your blog, uh, Physician on Fire. Start the, on this you mission. You know, I uh, I didn't have any plans to retire, especially early. Um, I guess if you asked me 10 years ago when I would retire, I figured, well, I'll be an empty nester in my early to mid fifties, and then maybe go work some locum tenens, which is how I started my career. And, and, uh, but about five or six years ago now, I, uh, discovered this concept of financial independence and read about people that were retiring early and figured out what the, the math behind it was and added up our investments and realized that lo and behold, we were in a pretty good position to, retire anytime. Um, I was basically financially independent then. This was about 10 years, not quite 10 years into my career. I was 39 and I wasn't ready to retire right then and there, but it got me thinking about the possibilities and what life might look like if I wasn't working anymore. And after crunching the numbers eight different ways, I approached my wife and said, you know, um, I bet you'd like to get back to Northern Michigan, which is where she's from. And there wasn't any work here after a, a hospital I used to work at went, went bankrupt. Um, uh, so we had left uh, a number of years earlier and, and lived and worked in uh, South Dakota and then Minnesota, which is my home state. Um, and that ended up being my best job. But um, long story short, after a year of kind of making plans, coming up with about a five-year plan, to exit from my anesthesia career, I realized that anyone that was writing about the FIRE movement, this financial independence idea, for the most part was writing from a very frugal uh, point of view, how you can save as much as possible by spending uh, very little 
And I knew that message wouldn't really jive with my physician colleagues. And it wasn't exactly what we were doing either, even though I feel like we were quite frugal compared to a lot of our physician peers. Um, but I approached it for more of a, you know, live the way you want to save a good amount of money, be intentional with the way you spend, but you can even, you know, you might be able to spend a low six figure amount each year, hundred thousand a year, or maybe more depending on where you are and how much you earn and all that, uh, and make work optional. And so, you know, seeing how physicians are burning out and I see a lot of people trying to spend their way out of their misery and that rarely works, you know? So I just thought uh, more physicians, um, like me who were previously unaware should, should become aware of, of, uh, you know, what the possibilities are if you actually save your money, invest it sensibly and get to a position of financial independence. Well, uh, let's talk about burnout for a second. Um, you know, you, you say you're, t- um, there's a quote that, uh, you have here. We're talking about physician burnout brought on by increasing bureaucracy, increasing hours and expectation, dec- decreasing time with patients pay for performance, unfair rating systems, et cetera. Um, and it wouldn't be tough to come up with a list of 101 ways a physician's life can be made more stressful. Yeah. So in your opinion, you know, what is, if you could start by addressing physician burnout, what is the first thing in all of that? I mean, there's a lot in there that you'd have to unpack, but what do you think the first change would be to make an impact to reduce physician burnout? And maybe it's not one, but what is kind of the primary focus to start down the, you know, yeah, that's taking that onion, peeling that onion away. Yeah, that's a really, really good question. And I, I wish I had all the answers. Um, you know, well, most of the solutions that are offered to us as individual physicians uh, start with the individual, but uh, clearly the, the true solution uh, needs to come uh, from my, you know, a higher, more broad standpoint. So I think, I think it starts with, you know, administration realizing, uh, you know, the, demands that are put on physicians from so many different angles and having them work to make our lives easier, uh, not more difficult. So, you know, I think in a lot of places, administration and physicians just clash and they, they feel like they're enemies and administration won't have a job if they don't have people to care for patients. So they should look for ways to, to make physicians lives easier and, and put aside any, you know, personal grievances or, uh, judgment and just have some empathy and realize, wow, there really is a lot on their plate. In addition to the stressful job, they have all this other junk that you mentioned in in that quote. Um, So I think, yeah, kind of getting on the same page and and realizing that we're, we're not enemies or or we, we as physicians shouldn't be seen as the enemy. Well, yeah, you're making, (laughs) you're making the facility work. I mean, uh, you know, you have to you can't have a hospital or you can't have a surgery center without the physician. No, nope, no, that's, that's for sure. Um, so if nothing changes, you know, where do you see the state of practicing medicine in 20 years? That's a tough question, you know, without a crystal ball, but I thought a little bit about this and I looked back 20 years ago, I was a fourth year medical student doing my clinical rotations and interviewing for anesthesia residencies. And so I can kind of look at what's changed in the last 20 years and what I've seen from my perspective is, you know, a, a trend towards more physicians being employed and having less autonomy. There seem to be fewer independent practices, either because they've been bought up by hospital systems or private equity buying out uh, independent practices, you know, and, and private equity, it tends to give bigger payouts to partners 
uh, but then they and anyone else coming into the practice will generally have less favorable working conditions, whether it's lower salary or just kind of leaner models, because the whole goal of private equity is to make the practice more profitable and then sell it again, you know, in a, in a few years or whatever the timeline may be. Um, you, you know, you've seen hospitals being bought up by bigger health systems, health systems merging. I feel like there are, are fewer and fewer employers and uh, in a way that gives them more bargaining power and, and less to the physicians. So um, we're talking about burnout now. That's something that you and I just talked about. And that's something that wasn't talked about 20 years ago. Not very much. Um, I think it was maybe, it was close to 20 years ago, but maybe 16, 18 years ago that the uh, residency work hours were reduced and, and some you know, time limits were put on on the work week. Um, we've seen title creep, you know, the, the term doctor, and I'm putting that in air quotes because it doesn't seem to mean that much anymore. Uh, many, many advanced degrees that are not MD or DO are now being uh, called doctors when they finish. And, uh, and that's true both inside and outside of the healthcare profession. Um, so it's not just title creep too, right? It's also the uh, ability for a lot of, uh, I guess what we call APPs, advanced practice practitioners, uh, whatever the term du jour is uh, for PAs, NPs, RNAs, et cetera, um, are being allowed to practice independently more and more. And I think that ties a little bit back to larger health systems, having more control and cutting costs and increasing profits. So I feel like in the future, it may be that it's more difficult for the patient to see an actual physician uh, for their regular medical care. Uh, there may be gatekeepers that uh, say, you see these people first and if you have a complex problem, you might see the physician. Um, you know, legislation obviously could change things. We had the Affordable Care Act, which did make it easier for people, especially those with pre-existing conditions, to uh, find and buy health insurance. Uh, didn't necessarily make it any more affordable unless you have a, a low income and qualify for these uh, subsidies. But I wouldn't be surprised to, be, to see, you know, more legislation um, either see what we have in place altered. There's been talk of lowering the eligibility age for Medicare to you know, 50 or lower even, uh, and that might be a paid option. You know, single payer has been brought up, which would probably end up looking like a dual payer system where you have basic care provided by the government and, and private care provided for those that can afford it. Uh, all those are potential possibilities I think it's going to be even more difficult for small practices to survive uh, in general with the number of different requirements with electronic health records and different insurance payers. Unique, there's kind of a lot of overhead that maybe wasn't there 20, 30 years ago. Um, one positive that's come of that is you know, you've seen a lot of primary care docs go the um, uh, direct primary care route, the DPC route, where they're not taking insurance just taking a subscription, going to patients' homes and providing a, a level of service that's difficult to do when you have all that overhead and, and all of those regulations. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how, how that evolves too. Yeah, a lot of interesting things. So uh, let's get back to you and, and um, how you were able to retire from practicing medicine at 40, you said 43? Yeah. 
yeah, so I um, didn't really know what I was saving for, but I've always kind of valued the money that I make. Um, <laughs> and it's it's just one of those things where I wasn't going to spend frivolously. And my wife uh, had very similar ideas about money. I, you know, in a way, we probably hoarded it is probably not, not the best word. But um, I don't know. It feels a little painful sometimes to spend money, whereas I know some people love to spend money and it makes them feel good where I love to save money and that makes me feel good. And so uh, that just led us to a position where we were saving, you know, maybe half or more of our income in a quote unquote normal year, which I moved a few times and we built a home and bought a few homes. (laughs) It wasn't always, uh, you know, there wasn't too many normal years, but you know, if I was making, you know, 350, 400,000, dollars a year spending maybe a hundred thousand paying taxes, there's still 150 to hundred thousand dollars left. And it happened to be that early in my career, we had a major bear market, the great recession. And uh, of course the cost of buying into the stock market got lower and lower and lower bottoming out in March of 2009. And I was investing that whole time. Um, started a separate IRA with uh, money that I was making from locums back in 2006, maxed that out every year, uh, invested in a taxable brokerage account outside of that, starting in, I think it was 2009 or 2010. And since then, the stock market has done very, very well. And that uh, that led us to that position of financial independence. And even in the last year, or I guess it was a year and a half ago now that we saw uh, markets plummet about 30%. Well, it took what, four months to get back to where it was. It was like a blip, you know? And so I've just been a very um, simple, straightforward in- investor that believes in in the stock market, understands the history of it, and has invested in mainly just mutual funds, index funds, uh, and just taking what the market returns. Well, and your, your blog discusses um, a lot about the economic benefits of investing in real estate. So I wanted to um, pick your brain for my audience that um, is in healthcare real estate. Mm-hmm. So what do you think about a practice or an entrepreneurial physician or group purchasing either a property for them to, to operate out of or an income producing property where they occupy a portion for their practice and then... Um, lease out the yeah, balance. It can certainly work and it can work well. And I, I do know physicians that, that have done that, um, you know, for, on the surgical side, it tends to be surgeons buying into a surgical center where they practice. And on the you know, clinic physician side, it, it may, you know, maybe more of uh, you know, buying the office space and, and then owning the building and, and renting out to others. As you said, um, the benefit obviously is that if all goes well, you're, you're sort of double dipping, you're getting um, a, not free, but you're, 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 you know, you own your office space, or you're not paying rent, you're collecting rent from others. Uh, and as long as your practices do well, then then all is well, and you can make great money doing that. I've got a radiologist friend that I can uh, talk to you offline about, maybe he'd be a good guest for you on, <laughs> on the podcast. But um, on the other hand, you know, you're putting a lot of eggs in one basket that way. If the practice for whatever reason, whether it's uh, through no fault of your own, through competition, through legislation, uh, if your practice becomes not so viable, well, now you've got the building not collecting rent from you while your practice is is uh, struggling. And that that could be a, a bit of a double whammy on, on the downside. So 
you know, and in investing just in general, I kind of think of two different approaches. One being spread your eggs out among many baskets or put many eggs in one basket and watch it very closely. Right. And so you're, you're kind of talking about the latter, um, which if you, uh, if you know that basket well, and you, uh, you know, you've done the research and you know, the risks, uh, upside and downside. Uh, I think that can be, uh, definitely be a viable, viable way to go. Do you think that the medical, op- medical office properties or, or healthcare facilities is a niche that might be easier for a clinician to get comfortable with um, as a property type because they can look at the tenants? I mean, obviously, they may not be uh, familiar with infrastructure like HVAC and electrical, but as far as the tenant mix, um, do you think it can kind of be something they can get more comfortable with faster than maybe another commercial asset um, class? Sure. Well, I, you know, kind of going back to just a general investing philosophy, you know, you should only invest in things that you can understand and easily explain to someone else. And, you know, I think that that definitely fits the bill. If you're a physician and you work in a clinic, uh, you work in a surgical center and you, especially if you are someone who has, uh, uh, you know, a managerial type uh, position where it's, it's your practice and you are the one making sure rent is paid and overhead is covered and all of that employees are paid, then yeah, you're in a good position to, to know what's a good deal, what's not, what numbers make sense, which ones don't. And um, yeah, so as an anesthesiologist, I know some anesthesiologists have had opportunities, like say if they work for a for-profit hospital, maybe they can buy shares in that hospital. Uh, That can be true of surgical centers as well. But I was never presented with an option um, to do that in my career. So I've never personally uh, been invested in that space. Um, But I have found different passive opportunities to invest in real estate funds and, and different syndications. And so that's something that I've done only really in the last uh, three to five years, basically after becoming financially independent and uh, deciding to explore these other avenues that uh, I know other physicians have been uh, very, very high on. Well, what has been, what is the one avenue that you find kind of more, most interesting at the moment or a couple avenues um, that in diving into the real estate investing side? So that's a good question. The, uh, you know, syndications are, are where you kind of pool together investors and you go in on one deal and oftentimes the returns uh, when the project goes well, which more often than not they do, uh, can be quite good, you know, mid teens to 20% and higher um, annual returns. Um, but there's a fair amount of due diligence each individual deal you look at, you want to know things about the sponsor putting together the deal, what the exact terms are, if there are any hidden risks in that particular location, et cetera. And it, it, it tends to be more than I care to uh, spend my time on. <laughs> um, but there are real estate funds, which are going to have uh, maybe six, eight, 10, 12 properties that the managers are doing the due diligence on. And then again, you, you still need to know, okay, what company, what fund, uh, I need to know something about their history and these people that are doing the due diligence. So there's the due diligence on the people doing due diligence. And I'm tired of saying that word, but um, yeah. So, but I, I find that's a little easier to, to swallow and, um, you know, per deal, you can kind of put in less money because it might still might be a six figure minimum to get in, but now you're diversified across maybe a dozen properties and that's less than 10,000 each. So if one fails uh, to do well 
and one does really well. And then on the average, you're going to get, you know, maybe about what they expected uh, for your returns. So I like that asset class, uh, the funds. And uh, yeah, I guess that's, that's kind of where I've been directing my money more, uh, more often lately. I started with really small funds, like there's the Fundrise and uh, Pier Street and a few others where you can get in for 10 bucks, a hundred bucks, thousand bucks, you know, and, but then you realize it's kind of, I don't want to say pointless, but, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's not going to move the dial, you know, unless, so now I'm, I'm in uh, funds that require you to be an accredited investor. And, and, um, and that's, that's where I'm, that's what I'm doing. What do you feel about um, joint ventures, like with capital partners? Cause they're, um, you know, there's a whole, there's a, there's a whole, uh, industry of, of healthcare real estate, which I'm finding a lot of physicians in some markets um, aren't even that aware of, but there are capital partners or joint venture partners that do understand they've, they've done several developments with um, a physician or a physician group where they come in and, um, you know, they, they work well with healthcare companies to develop properties and provide ownership in their property. What do you feel uh, as an investment for a physician looking for some passive income where they don't have to manage the, the real estate directly. And they have an experienced partner that brings in capital and management expertise, but they can also invest in the real that estate. sounds like a good uh, structure to me. I'm one of those physician that is not very familiar with that space. Um, just you know, maybe by virtue of my specialty being anesthesia and uh, not really paying a whole lot of attention to real estate as an asset class until the last few years. I, uh, I did have a couple of homes that I owned that we moved away from and used as rental properties. But, you know, looking back, the numbers on that didn't make a whole lot of sense. And, and I should have sold uh, as soon as I moved away, but we weren't quite ready to do that at, at the time. So, uh, yeah, so I, I really can't uh, comment um, much beyond, uh, beyond that. Okay. Uh, so do you own any of the, your real estate as an independent, like just a, um, a piece of real estate? Well, you've, you've done rental homes, you said. As I did. Of- yeah. Like the residency condo that I had in Gainesville, Florida, we rented that out for seven years to two different tenants and it, it, it was easy enough, but, um, and I just owned that under my name and we, we kind of did the same thing with the first home that we built, uh, in a town where the hospital went bankrupt and we used that as a long-term rental, then a short-term rental, and then finally found a buyer, which was not easy because when a hospital closes in a small town, there aren't many people that can afford a house like that, you know, <laughs> ended up being the guy that came in and bought the Cadillac dealership in town, bought our house. So, And uh, did you manage any of your rental properties yourself? We, I used a property manager for the condo <laughs> and the short-term rental also used a management company for that. I did arrange the uh, long-term uh, rental with an individual. I can't even remember how we got connected. I think my wife knew his wife and they were kind of looking for a, a place. So it worked out. Uh, so a mix of both uh, personal management and property management companies. Which did you like the best? Mm, well, actually the one we managed ourselves, uh, it was a dentist and his family. Uh, they were very nice and respectful and, and they made it really easy. So uh, in general, I would say I'd, I'd prefer to have a property manager, especially if we had multiple properties you know, at the same time, but uh, we happened to get a, a really good tenant and that made it really easy. And they stayed in there for 18 months. So that worked out well. 
Nice. Okay, so I have one more question, and then we'll go to the Q and A to get to know you a little bit. But uh, do you miss anesthesiology? Not at all? really. I guess that's my answer. <laughs> I don't want to just say no. God, thank God, because I didn't mind. You know, I didn't mind working, and uh, I don't think I was terribly burnt out. Maybe felt you know some minor symptoms of burnout, but um, I miss some other people and uh, both patients and staff. But there hasn't been a day where I woke up and wished I was going into the OR. <laughs> well, you have to be on call for you know, that too, yeah. uncertain times too. Oh yeah. <laughs> so uh, we'll go into the Q and A now. What was your first job? I worked at a grocery store and uh, stock shelves, bag groceries, that sort of thing. Did that for three to four years. I think my from age sixteen to nineteen, my first year after college, and then I didn't come back to my hometown after college after uh, after freshman year. Uh, what else can you see yourself doing for a living? Hmm, um, that's a good question. I have a blog and I, <laughs> I, I do make some money there now. <laughs> so I guess I could answer that. I could, I could write. Um, I could see myself writing longer form, like a book or two, maybe at some point, but right now I just have the attention span to write blog posts. And, um, I think I could have fun just being a, bartender or, or brewmaster. Uh, I do enjoy homebrewing beers and I've invested in a couple of breweries myself. And so I could see uh, uh, that being a career, but then at the same time, making a job out of a hobby can ruin the hobby <laughs> and take the fun out of it. So <laughs> I don't know what I necessarily want to do that. Oh, my, my husband would love to try your, your beers. Yeah. He likes all those craft beers. Uh, what else can you see? Um, what are, who are you reading or listening to right now for news information or inspiration? Mm, okay. Um, news information or inspiration. Uh, well, with the blog, I find myself reading, um, writing, sorry, reading a lot of other blogs because I do a roundup post every Sunday and, and link to things that I think my readers will find interesting. Um, and yeah, I don't have a ton of, uh, like I mean, I'm trying to read books. Like every morning I, I'd read a chapter in a book and I'm reading a boring book about taxes right now. So that's <laughs> not really worth mentioning, but um, no. And my wife and I told ourselves we'd watch more shows and movies after I retired, but we haven't really been very good about that. I did watch stranger things seasons one, two, and three <laughs> with my wife this summer. <laughs> and now we're patiently awaiting season four. I guess it's coming next year. What is one thing you do every day for healthy self-care? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so every day I do uh, 100 push-ups, 100 sit-ups, and 40 air squats. It's just a routine that I have. I do in 10, 12 minutes usually. Um, I also do a language lesson in Spanish on Duolingo every day. I have like a 700-day streak on that, although that's kind of cheating because you can have a, a skip day and get credit for it. But um, but the push-ups, I know I've done in sit-ups like four. I don't know, five to 600 days now. It started with the uh, quarantine early in the pandemic. And I just, I've done it every single day. One thing I, I won't let myself skip. Well, that's nice. Um, so then I have, I have two questions. One, I usually do one for people that are clinicians and one for people that are um, investors or business owners, but you're, you're both. So mm -hmm. I'll do, I'll start with uh, our leaders born or trained. I think... I think ooh, that's tough. I'll go with trained. I think, I think we're all a product of nature and nurture, you know, but, uh, I, I think, um, 
you know, whether it's formal training or mentorship. Yeah. I'm going to go with, I'm going to go with train. Um, and then for clinicians, I, I asked the question, do you feel that, um, there's a natural inclination for somebody to want to heal or is it only learned through medical training? I think that's more of a natural inclination. Uh, you know, I, I see it in one of my sons who loves animals and, you know, I could see him being a veterinarian or animal trainer or, or maybe doctor, uh, someday. And I feel like I was the same way too. My dad was a dentist and my mom uh, was trained as a nurse. And so uh, maybe it was, a. Uh, uh, born in, and I saw them, I saw what they did for a living and, and decided that that was something that I wanted to do too. Nice. Nice. I like that. Well, thank you, Leif. This has been a wonderful interview. I do appreciate your time. Thank you, Tricia. Yeah, it was great talking with you. I'm grateful for you tuning in to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast with others. As a disclaimer, this podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only and not intended for specific real estate investment advice.